Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you after a week of study break. I appreciate your prayers for myself and my family during that time. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22 together this morning. We're kind of pausing the story in the middle a little bit, so we'll pick up some of these same themes uh, next week as well. But I'd like to just begin by reading Matthew 19, verses 13 through 22 with you now. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is God's word given to bless us. Let's seek his blessing on our time in the scriptures this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us as we come to this text, not to stand, as it were, outside of this story, but to see the way in which this exchange between the young man and you is a picture, is an echo, is a mirror so often of how our hearts come to you. And I ask now, God, that as we consider what you teach us about ourselves, what we teach us, what you teach us about you, what you teach us about your kingdom, that we would know how it is that you call and invite us to enter your kingdom and to follow you. And I ask now, God, that you would give us open ears and hearts to receive your word today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you. Have you ever tried to catch a raccoon? When I was eight years old, I read a book, probably many of you have read the same book, Where the Red Fern Grows by uh, Wilson Rawls, and it's all about coon hunting. And it tells the story of this young boy, Billy, who grows up in the Ozarks, who gets a pair of dogs and learns how to hunt raccoons. And one of my favorite scenes in the book, just this thing that stuck to me as a little boy and inspired me to go do it myself, was where Billy's grandpa tells him how to catch a raccoon. And here's what he says. He says, you, you, you get yourself a log and you drill a hole in the log. And down in that hole, you drop something shiny, tinfoil, a coin, whatever it is, something shiny, you drop it in there, 
and you, you then take some nails and, and nail in at an angle around the hole these nails. And what happens then is the raccoon will see something shiny. He'll reach down inside and he'll grab it. And when he grabs it, the nails will keep him from being able to withdraw his hand. Now, you might think that sounds like a stupid trap because the raccoon could just let go of the tin foil and pull out his hand like he put it in, right? Well, this is where Billy Gram- Billy's grandpa says, this is what you need to know about raccoons. When they get something shiny, when they see that thing that, that catches their eye, they want it so much that they won't let go of it. They won't drop it. And so they'll be stuck there by their own greed, by their own desire, holding on to this shiny object and not able to remove their hand. Some of you little boys will probably try to do that this week. Um, I tried. I never caught a raccoon. But uh, if you have an ounce of self-reflection, you should realize that you probably have a lot more in common with that raccoon than you'd like to admit. There are things that grab hold of us, things that that catch our desires, things that that control us, and we then grab on to them. And often it keeps us from the freedom and the life that we can have in Christ. And we have a picture of that dynamic here in this very famous story where where a young man, a, a rich young man, we're told if we look at Luke's account and Mark's account as well, comes to Jesus and he wants to know how he can have eternal life, how he can have freedom. And we get to see in the back and forth what it is that is holding this young man back from what it is he says he wants. And we see as well Jesus teaching this young man and teaching us what it looks like to let go of the tinfoil and to find freedom in Christ. So let's spend some time in this passage looking at this story and, and, and looking for, for really two things. We want to see what it is that keeps us from the kingdom, what it is that keeps us from that eternal life that this young man is seeking. And then also, what it is that gets us in the kingdom. What it means to find that freedom in Christ. So first, look with me again at verses 16 through 20. There's this exchange that takes place. Behold, a man comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, as we walk, read through this exchange Look for what it is that that this man is holding on to as he thinks about how he's going to get eternal life. Verse 17, Jesus says to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What do I still lack? There's a lot to unpack in that exchange, but let's just walk through this a moment. First off, as this young man thinks about how it is to to come into the kingdom, how it is to approach the kingdom, where is his focus? What, What kind of answer does he expect Jesus to give? Well, you can tell that what he's looking for is some some action, some application, something that he's supposed to do. That's how he thinks he will enter the kingdom. 
The, the kingdom in the, in the mind of this young man is something that is earned. It's not a given. It's not that everyone gets it. It's not something that you have by birth. It's something that you earn. You can see it in the way the question is framed. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? He wants a certain outcome, right? Eternal life, uh, membership in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, what do I have to put in to get that out? It's a very natural question, isn't it? If you ask uh, most people, in fact, this is kind of a common evangelistic tactic, isn't it? You go up to someone and you say, you know, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? It's not a bad question. And a lot of people, if they're confronted with that question, will kind of run back through their life. And what they're looking at is, how have I done? Have I been mostly good? Have I done some, some extra deeds that would earn me favor with God? If I kind of balance things in the scale, which way does it tip? That's the natural human orientation. When we think about uh, entering into eternal life, we tend to look at our life now and say, okay, am I doing enough? Am I good? And some people can, can be very content with what they see, and they think, yeah, of course God's going to let me in. I would be a real asset in heaven. Other people are very hard on themselves, and no matter what they do, no matter how much they work, no matter how much they serve, they think, surely God will reject me. Well, those very different responses are actually coming from the same instinct, aren't they? Both of those people are are looking at their life and saying, this is going to be the measure that either gets me in or keeps me out. The Bible has a a word for this. It's self-righteousness. When you think about your standing before God, where you look is inside. Where you look is at yourself. This is what's going to bring me into fellowship with God or keep me out of fellowship with God. And this is a dynamic that all of us wrestle with. It's something that comes up when you think about what it means to become a Christian, right? This is one of the things you have to overcome in understanding the gospel, that the gospel is not the message, here are the right behaviors to do, and if you do them, congratulations, you have earned eternal life, but rather the message that our righteousness is as filthy rags, and that the only righteousness that can bring us into fellowship with God is is not something that we produce, it's something that Christ has already accomplished. And so as we'll talk about more uh, in a moment, uh, the gospel is calling us to let go of our own righteousness and to hold on to the righteousness of another. That's something we have to understand to be justified, to be made right before God, to become Christians. But if you are a Christian here today, this is not just something that maybe you struggled with 20 years ago when you were first learning about the gospel. It's something that, if you're honest with yourself, you wrestled with this week. You may even have wrestled with it today. You may be wrestling with it right now. That as you look at your life, as you look at your circumstances, as you think about what it is that you want, what you are leaning on in the day-to-day may very well be yourself. Your own righteousness, your own good deeds, How do you feel like you're doing spiritually? Someone were to ask you that question, how would you kind of rate it? Maybe give it a number, somewhere between 1 and 10. 10 is, it couldn't be better. 1 is, it couldn't be worse. How are you doing? Well, as you think about how to answer that question, it may be that your mind is jumping back to saying, well, how am I doing? Have I 
been kind to people? Have I done my devotions? Have I been faithful in coming to church? Have I given a full tithe? All of these kinds of things, none of which are bad, actually all of which are commanded and are good, but none of which are called to be the mark or measure of how we are doing in the Christian life. Rather, we are called to to not just a a set of, of, of actions externally, but to an inward relationship with God, which then gives fruit to those actions. So the actions are relevant, but, but they're relevant because they reflect something more underneath the surface. And when we turn Christianity into not an internal and external thing, but merely an external thing, we get lopsided, we get off track, we, we fall into this pattern of self-righteousness. And we can begin to say, well, yes, I've, as I look at my Bible reading chart, all of the boxes are checked, so I think I'm doing good. And one way of shaking ourselves out of this is what Jesus does with this young man. He says, what can I do? What's the good deed? What's the action? And so Jesus says, okay, if you want to try to justify yourself, let's go to God's law. And that's where he directs this young man. He says, keep the commandments. The young man asks him, well, which ones? And Jesus points him to a summary of the Ten Commandments, the law. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is a summary of the second table of the law. He's saying, okay, if you think you've done what you should do before God, here's a way of checking How are you treating those around you? How are you interacting in those horizontal relationships? It's possible to come to church or to temple, right, in in this day, and to offer your sacrifices, to sing your praise, uh, to wear nice, nice clothes, and to say, okay, my relationship with God is good. And yet during the week, to be interacting with each other with anger, resentment, bitterness, gossip, discontent, all of these things... And Jesus is is pushing the young man to consider that. Not just have you given uh, donations to the temple, have you had these grand gestures of your religion before God, but how is that religion working its way into how you treat other people? Maybe especially for this young man, who we know was wealthy and was a ruler, maybe there's this implication as well. Not just how you're treating your peers or the priests, but how are you treating your servants? How are you treating those around you, those underneath you, those who are less fortunate? What Jesus is doing here is very wise because it's addressing one of the tendencies that we can fall into. One of the reasons why we can lean back on self-righteousness, even though we are not righteous in God's eyes, is because we tend to overlook God's law. When we're looking for those metrics or measurements of of how to know if we're doing well, we're often content to not go to what the Scripture calls us to do, but just to look at what other people are doing and saying, am I fast enough? Right? It's kind of that, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun my friend you know, mentality. Uh, you just have to be better than the guy next to you. And if I'm doing better than he is, then I think I'm doing okay. How do we fall into that in our day? Well, you get on social media and you look at the crazy things that are going on in the world and then you say, well, I'm not engaging in those practices. I'm not supporting those ideas. I'm not perpetuating that kind of a thing. So surely my life is really good. It's it's really righteous. It's better than them at least. We can compare ourselves to one another and therefore let ourselves off the hook or even pat ourselves on the back and say, see, I'm really something special. 
But of course, the metric by which men stand or fall is not what's common in the culture around you or what does your neighbor expect of you. It's what does your God demand of you? What has God's law said? This is how John will capture what sin is. Sin is lawlessness, John says in 1 John. And the law we are called to look to is not our law, not our culture's law. It's God's law. How are you doing by that standard? How are you doing by that metric? Could you honestly look at God's law and think that you are keeping it? Well, you should say no. This young man, however, says yes. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Now, we should kind of uh, chuckle a little bit at that in one sense, because we know we've been following Jesus right through the gospel. We've heard him in the Sermon on the Mount unpack what exactly it means not to murder, what exactly it means not to commit adultery. And we know that this young man's understanding of these laws must be pretty thin if he could hear Jesus say, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. And he could think he could say, yes, I have kept all of these perfectly. Because, of course, none of us have kept these perfectly. Jesus teaches us that angry thoughts, impatient thoughts, words of frustration are murder. They're a breaking of this law. Jesus teaches us that that lustful intent, a wandering gaze, these are things that are also committing adultery, also breaking the sanctity of marriage. You see, it's not just the big public sins. It's not just the things that, that, that land you in prison or cast social shame on you. It may be things that are accepted or even celebrated in our culture, things that we don't really view as being that big of a deal, maybe even in the context of the church, that in God's eyes, nonetheless, are still law-breaking. And so you see how there's, there's two tendencies at play that Jesus is trying to break through as he talks to this young man. The young man has a temptation first to overlook God's law, to not measure himself by God's standard, but rather by the standard of others. And the second tendency when we're confronted with God's law is to overestimate our obedience to it, right? To think, well, I'm still doing pretty good. We know from uh, parallel accounts of this that when Jesus looked at this young man, he had compassion on him. This is not him trying to crush the young man. It's not him trying to just put the young man in his place. It's actually him trying to lovingly prick his conscience, to lovingly take the, the mask off to show what's really underneath, to show the depths of the problem. And so Jesus is, is, is dealing with this internal self-righteousness. This is something that this young man is grabbing onto. What I have done, what I will do, that's what will get me into the kingdom. That's the tinfoil for this young man. It's something that he is clutching onto. Jesus wants to break that grip free. And so here's where he goes in verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, these are verses that need some explanation, don't they? 
Some people have understood by this that what Jesus is saying is if you really want to be a Christian, or maybe if you want to be kind of a super Christian, if you want to be in this special category, what you should do is go home, sell your house, sell your car, sell your clothes, give it all away to some charity, and then live a life of a hermit. And there are many men and women throughout history who have done exactly that. This was a very common thing, especially uh, in the early church after the Roman Empire had become Christian. And there were a lot of people who were kind of nominal Christians. They just became Christians because the emperor was a Christian. And so people who wanted to be serious said, how can I mark myself out as a as a real believer? And some of them said, this is the way I'm going to sell everything I have and go live out in the desert. Well, it's not wrong to give away your wealth. It's not wrong to sell what you have and give to the poor. However, that's not the point behind what Jesus is saying. The problem here is not wealth. It's the love of wealth. Remember what Jesus will say elsewhere. What's the root of all evil? It's not money in itself. It's the love of money. It's when that desire, when those possessions are things that you don't have, they're things that have you. They're things that are controlling you. They're things that have become an idol, right? When we think about idols, our minds may jump to the Old Testament. You think about the pagan nations that have these big statues and they're bowing down to it and they're uh, sacrificing goats to it. And you think, well, I don't have anything like that in my life. But of course, our lives are full of idols because we take the good things God has given us, Romans says, and we treat them as if they are God themselves. Might be our car, might be our house, might be our bank account, but in whatever it is, these are things that God has given that we want to treat as if it is God, that we want to, to turn into objects of worship and adoration. This is the goal, to have more of my God, but not the God of the Bible. That's why Jesus is putting his finger right here. It's not that this is the, the secret command that automatically earns you eternal life. Rather, what Jesus is doing is showing this young man that while he thinks he's kept all the commandments, he hasn't even gotten the first one right. He hasn't even worshipped the Lord his God above all else. He hasn't set aside those idols. There are things that God has given him that that man is holding on to, keeping him from the God who has given him that gift in the first place. Let's go back to our raccoon analogy. This is where, if we are honest with ourselves, we'll see a lot of ourselves in this young man. We'll see the self-righteousness, those internal things that are keeping him back from Christ, keeping him back from the kingdom, thinking that he needs to do what he needs to do, and that will earn God's righteousness. Or he has done those things, and therefore he has it. Whatever that motivation is, we see that same heart in ourselves, don't we? And we see as well that there are these external things. It's not just self-righteousness. It's stuff. It's things that we hold on to that keep us from God. Now, what is that in your life? You may not have millions of dollars sitting in the bank. You may not be the, the rich young ruler. And so you might think, well, this is not really talking to me. If I could show you my bank account, you would know this is not talking to me. But I would guess that there is still something in your life that you hold on to. You know, when you watch little kids play, you get to see this dynamic 
played out, don't you? Where uh, they may be playing and there's one toy that for whatever reason has become the toy that everyone wants, right? And so as the parent, you talk to the, the child who has possession of the desirable toy and you say, you need to share. And that child is always happy to share something else, right? They grab the old sock. Here, you play with this and I'll play with the toy that everyone wants. There's something like that in your life. We're a lot more like kids than we like to think. There's something that that we're not willing to let go of. We're not willing to let other people touch or step on or get in the way of. We may be very happy to be nice people and and give other things and, and, and serve in certain ways as long as it's on our terms. But if it starts to affect my money, that's the bridge too far. If it starts to impinge on my time, that's more than I'm willing to give. If it disrupts the order of my life, or the peace of my life, or maybe I'm concerned that that this demand, this service, is going to reflect badly on me. It's going to harm my reputation. I want to be known as the guy who's always responsible, or I want to be known as the guy who's always intelligent. And, 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 and if someone is going to impinge on that, if, if some service is going to, to, to hurt that, then I want no part of it. Maybe it's just good old-fashioned control. I want to have a, a, a say in what is going on in my world. And so there are things that we're happy to give up, and there are other things that we tend to hold on to. Now, why is that such a big deal? I mean, if we're coming to God and we're saying, look, God, I'm happy to give you 90% of what I have. I just just want this, my health, my reputation, my money, my control, whatever it is. This is all I'm asking for. Why is that a problem? Well, because what we are doing when we do that is we're trying to limit the lordship of Christ. In other words, we're trying to, as Elder Rick said, slip onto the throne in some sense. Maybe we say, yes, you're the greatest king, but I'd like to be a minor vassal. We can kind of co-rule together. God is not looking for allies. He's not a weak king who needs to build up his power structure. He is Lord over all. And whenever we try to set ourselves up as minor lords, we are dishonoring the king of kings and lord of lords. And we're also setting ourselves up for misery and failure because we are not made to be lords. We are made to find freedom in service to the true Lord, to the true king. And so Jesus is calling this rich, young ruler to set aside his wealth, to set aside his power. Not because those things are evil in themselves, but because they have become for him impediments to God. And he gives him this call, come follow me. You can almost see the young man. His hand is in the trap. All he has to do is let go. And he has that freedom. He has that life. And then we have one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Matthew 19, 22. When the young man heard this, he clutched his fist even tighter. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
There was something in him that said, that's too much, God. I can't do that. I would rather have my stuff. I would rather have my comfort. I would rather have my reputation than life with you. It's an obviously foolish choice in the grand scheme of things, and yet isn't it familiar? Haven't you made that same choice? Haven't you said, Lord, I want to be free from this sin, and yet I'm not willing to give up the pleasure I get from it. Lord, I, I, I want to have this life of, of peace in my relationship with others, but I'm not willing to let go of my own pride to have it. There are countless examples because we do this every day, don't we? We clutch on to these shiny objects, this tin foil, and this keeps us back from the kingdom of God. But listen to what Jesus is saying, because if this rich young ruler has ears to hear, and if you have ears to hear today, Jesus is showing him the way out, or rather, the way in. What does it mean to have that life? What does it mean to be part of the kingdom? How can you not walk away, but walk towards? Well, Jesus shows us in these verses. First, we see it in verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. What is Jesus telling the young man to do? At its root, here's what he is telling him. He's telling him to repent. That's what he's saying. He's saying repent. Now, kids, what does it mean to repent? Maybe in our minds we think repent means you say, I'm sorry, Right? That's kind of what we do. Mom says, you know, you need to go apologize. I'm sorry. That's not really all that repentance is. That's part of repentance, that there's sorrow, and not just words of sorrow, but real sorrow over sin. But repentance involves a turning away from one thing to another. So it's turning away from the anger towards your sibling. It's turning away from the bitterness towards your sibling. And it's turning instead to a way of peace and love with them. Ultimately, repentance always involves not only our relationship with each other, but our relationship with God. It's saying, okay, Lord, I'm going to live in light of what you have said. What you say is true. What you say matters. That's what's going to control my response in this situation. There's a turning from something and a turning to something, which is what we see in this verse. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, sell all you have. He's saying, turn away from the security and the comfort and the trust that you are investing in these things and instead turn yourself towards me. Put your trust in me. And the only way we can do that, friends, is if we realize two things. First, we have to realize that everything we have, we have received. Part of the folly of holding on to something instead of Christ is that there's no guarantees you can hold on to that thing. And that's true whether we're talking about money or whether we're talking about health or whether we're talking about relationships or whether we're talking about peace or whether we're talking about your own mental faculties. Everything is subject to decay and sin in this world. And you can think of anyone the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most popular, and you will see that often it's those at the top who fall hardest and farthest, isn't it? 
There is no way of gaining security for yourselves. And yet we all give in to the illusion that we can, that we can carve out these stable little kingdoms where we can have things our way. It's a lie. God gives us many good things, but they're all gifts. And what he has given, he can also take away. And often when he takes them away, it's not an act of anger. It's an act of love to show us where we can have true security. Because we remember that everything we have received, we have received as a gift. And we remember as well that nothing we have received can compare to the gift of Christ himself. You see this uh, uh, contrast, don't you? Where the, the, the rich young man is coming to Jesus and what he's looking for is something to do. He's looking for a law. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And what does Jesus ultimately call him to? Not to a new law, but to a new Lord. Not to a different way of life, but to the, the one who is life. The one who gives life to Christ himself. And the sadness when this young man walks away is that he is not willing to let go of something that really doesn't matter and that he really can't control to have eternal life when Christ himself has let go of his glory and his riches so that this man and you might be saved. We are often clinging on to things that don't matter when Jesus let go of all that mattered so that we might be united with him, so that we could follow him by his spirit. This is what Jesus is calling us to. It's what he's calling you to. Not just to clean up your act, not just to do some extra good works, not just to try and tip the scales more on the good side than the bad side, but to follow him. To desire him, to come to him not merely as a teacher from whom we get advice and tips about how to live our life, but as the Lord, who is the giver and God of our life. And there's this call to repentance that's also a call to faith then, to put our faith in Jesus, to put our faith in what he has done. That's where I think the, the story we read at the beginning uh, ties in. Look at verses 13 through 15. Right before we have this rich young man who's so confident in his possessions, so confident in his righteousness, what do we have set in contrast to that? Children who are being brought to Christ. Little kids who don't own anything. Little kids who don't think they're perfect. Little kids who are dependent who were coming to Christ for blessing. And what we see is while the young man goes away, he is sent away by his own uh, desire and, and lust for stuff and self-righteousness. In contrast to that are the little children who are brought to him, who have Jesus' hands laid upon them, who are blessed. Verse 14 captures it. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. That's what you're called to be. That's what I'm called to be. Like little children, utterly dependent, utterly needy, without pretension, without pride, simply coming to Jesus. Not trying to be the king, just wanting to be with the king, just wanting to follow the king. And again, this is something that you may need to hear if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ. 
It may be that as you think about these things, you realize that your heart is a lot like the young man. There's self-righteousness there. There's, there's a, a controlling there. There's, there's a desire to hold on to something and an unwillingness to let go, to let Jesus in. That seems like too much. It seems like a bridge too far. Well, friend, don't let it be said of you what's said of this man, that he went away sorrowful. Be like the little children who don't come with anything in their hands. They simply come seeking Christ. And friend, if you are someone who does know Christ, remember that this is not a lesson that we learn once and then we're done. This is a daily life of repentance. Repentance and faith. Turning from sin, turning to the Savior. Thomas Watson said, Repentance and faith are the two wings by which a believer flies to heaven. In other words, this is our life in this world. Every day, every week, God will, by His grace, show you those things that you're grabbing onto, those things you're clinging tightly to, those things that you thought you possessed but actually possess you, and He's calling you to let them go, to set them down, to follow Christ. For to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we are often content with the gifts and not the giver. We ask, God, that you would forgive us for our idolatry. We ask that you would help us to see the ways in which we hold on to things that may be fine in themselves, but which we have fashioned into idols, gods of our own imagining. And we have exchanged the true God. We have exchanged the Christ who has laid down his life for us who calls us to follow him, and we say, no, instead, I want to follow this lesser thing. Father, I pray that you would help us to know our hearts. I pray that you would send your spirit to convict our hearts. And I pray that you would enable us to set aside those things, to come not as those who are wealthy, not as those who are powerful, but like a little child, seeking your blessing and following you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.